Hey everyone, thank you for tuning to listen to another episode of Scraps. We hope you have enjoyed the season so far and specifically its focus on bioelectronic medicines. We heard some extensive feedback after the last episode was released. So, thank you to each and every one of you who actually gave us your critical feedback. The last episode on brain computer interfaces and boy, it surely opened up some emotions in a lot of you. We have gathered these emotions and we'll get back to you very soon with answers or at least we'll try to answer them. We promise that. So stay tuned. In addition, there is some production work going on currently in addressing a very key topic in our field, the notorious vagus nerve. We will come back very soon on the topic with what we hope will be a key content to spruce up the debate on science, scientists and a much more deeper question on who and how we behave as people and human beings. But before we go there, we wanted to prime you and your thinking with this episode. It was released a while ago as part of our last season on psychedelics and this episode deals specifically with the history of serotonin. What we want you to pay attention to are the stories of discovery, how disparate sources of information are put together and how that leads to innovation and scientific discoveries. This will be very helpful in the next few episodes. So without further ado, here is that episode. Eighteen June, nineteen seventy-one. Spurred on by the decades-old prohibition laws, which increased in intensity with every passing decade since the nineteen twenties, the counterculture of the nineteen sixties, anti-war protests, CIA's unsuccessful effort to control the mind with disastrous consequences, which meant U.S. President Richard Nixon's self-induced paranoia. It was the perfect storm that resulted in the war on drugs. The world, it appeared, had come to a screeching halt on that fateful day in June 1971. So far, we have recollected all the cultural and scientific happenings, which included moments of remarkable serendipity, controversies, scientific fudging and massaging of data by Timothy Leary, unwarranted glorification that led to all the issues that resulted in 1971 ban on drugs. But we only spoke of the societal issues and how, despite some promising clinical data from Humphrey Osman and his colleagues in Canada, to some badly followed up studies by Timothy Leary, and those circumstances led to a panic and societal turmoil much more than the advanced psychiatry and psychiatric medicine. This was the time when psychiatry was ruled by some very invasive practices like lobotomy and electroshock therapy. While in the hands of the therapists, these substances provided a unique tool that helped to heal a host of issues for those suffering from alcoholism, the elites used it for recreational purposes, triggering a hysteria that led to widespread recreational use. What is more startling was that the very person who proposed the concept of set and setting also promoted recreational use, asking people to turn on, tune in and drop out. Therefore, it must come as no surprise that such fervor fueled the paranoia of the establishment 
that had already suffered the failures and the atrocities perpetrated by Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA. What was the logical political solution? An all-out ban, of course. One where all substances that affect the brain could be lumped into one, asserting that none of these substances have a medical use. The advertisements proclaimed that all drugs, including psychedelics, specifically LSD, were highly addictive and caused the brain to shrink. But was there any scientific data to suggest that psychedelics cause brain damage or were unsafe? Well, that's what we are here to find out. This is Psychedelics, a Scraps original podcast exploring the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. An enthralling story of an improbable drug class, as old as humankind itself, banished into exile, yet comes back soaring like a phoenix from the ashes to save mankind's affliction with mental health disorders. One can easily explain, based on decades of accumulated know-how, that serotonin or serotonin-like compounds alter brain states like psychedelics. It's common knowledge that typical psychedelics have the indole backbone and resemble serotonin, an endogenous neurotransmitter that exists in the brain. Serotonin plays a critical role in many brain regions. Prefrontal cortex, which controls complex behaviors, Cerebral cortex, which controls higher functions like attention, perception, awareness, thought, memory, language, and consciousness. Hypothalamus, which controls appetite. Hippocampus, that controls learning, memory, and processing of stress signals. It's very tempting to say that psychedelic molecules affect these areas and functions. Therefore, it's tempting to say psychedelic molecules positively impact all of these. But the truth and science tell us differently. So we're going to explain in a way that even a layperson can understand this more complex phenomenon. To understand the science behind psychedelics, we need to go right to the basics. Basics about what the brain uses to communicate and how these brain cells communicate. Before we go there, I want to sound a disclaimer. Compared to any other drug class where the influence of the drug on the brain is well understood, for example, with opioid drugs like heroin, cocaine, other prescription painkillers or alcohol or nicotine, psychedelics are very different. We have established in past episodes that psychedelics do not numb the brain the way these other drugs do. Remember the British MP who was vividly able to count backwards subtracting 7 from 100? Or Hoffman, Hefter, and others who described that they were able to remember everything that happened to them during ingestion? Such things are not possible when someone is under the influence of a sedative or an intoxicant. There is an inherent problem with how even the experts talk about psychedelics. In an excellent review by David Nichols, a pioneering researcher, David reports Stanislav Grof characterized LSD as a powerful, non-specific amplifier of the unconscious. The empirical observation was based on his personal supervision of more than 1,000 clinical administrations of LSD. Once again, the issue here is the choice of words. 
By Groff calling it, quote, nonspecific amplifier of the unconscious, unquote, he has managed to lose the people who consider themselves as conscious in daily life. Then David Nichols, despite being the great scientist that he is, has convoluted the argument by calling it an empirical observation. David Nichols continues further, quoting another author, Barr et al.'s 1972 paper, quote, The phenomenon induced by LSD cannot be predicted or understood in purely pharmacological terms. The personality of the drug taker plays an enormous and critical role in determining how much effect there will be and of what particular type, end quote. Not everyone reads scientific papers, but I'm sure many of us watch movies. Remember the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit? If you remember the movie, there is a Rastafarian-looking wizard aptly named Radagast. He lives in the forest, smokes weed, looks half-stoned, he's highly introspective, grows mushrooms, and even rides on a sled driven by rats. Remember what the elites, the white council composed of elves, the Lady of Light, Galadriel and Gandalf think about Radagast? Well, if you can't recall, we have it here. It's his excessive consumption of mushrooms. They've addled his brain and yellowed his teeth. So we know by these arguments in scientific literature that subjectivity is rife, and the variety of responses elicited by ingestion of psychedelics is affected by how, when, and what the person is ingesting. When one talks about the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics, they should be subjected to the same rigor that any other drugs for other conditions are subjected to. One cannot point to the 1960s counterculture without recognizing the effects of the prison experiments or efforts of Osmond and others who both oversaw clinical trials and inadvertently contributed directly to the recreational use and say that there is evidence. Unfortunately, these happenings do not pass the acid test. Therefore, there's a big reason to harmonize all of this and conduct studies to inform therapeutic benefit. That's the only way to change the narrative. Whether one is taking a drug prescribed by a physician in a clinical trial or using it for recreational use, informed decision-making grounded in facts and evidence is key. So this episode will outline the framework on how to understand and interpret these effects. The brain, like almost every other organ, is a collection of cells that form a tissue. The tissue is rich in brain cells specifically called neurons. These neurons or nerve cells have a basic cell body that houses the control processes which many of us refer to as the nucleus and has these classic projections that look like a skeleton of a leaf if you held up the leaf against the sun. These type of cellular projections that extend from the cell body are called axons. And the beautiful thing about these axons are that they, much like electrical cables, act to propagate information to its adjacent neurons, carrying information and nutrients from the control center called nucleus. So in essence, once a relay is set up from one cell to another, with these multiple projections that come out from the nucleus, it is very plausible that each cell can communicate to many other neighboring cells, thereby setting up a network made of nerve cells. So in essence, when you heard a nerd in Silicon Valley refer to neuromorphic processes or algorithms, or in today's artificial intelligence, 
what one is trying to recreate is essentially this complex network architecture, communication, and as a result, decision-making on a chip. So that's the relationship between the brain and its influence on computing. We will come to how these neuromorphic processes can be exploited in a bit. But for now, we are not here to talk about artificial intelligence, but on how these psychedelic molecules work. We can take a pretty normal view like Wikipedia to say that psychedelic substances bind to 5-HT receptors that in turn causes hallucinatory changes. But it doesn't help you or anyone, does it? So we're going to explain the concept with stories of people who discovered and ultimately end with an understanding of how psychedelics work. First, a disclaimer. There are many substances that are known to man, for example, like the cacti that we discussed, called as San Pedro or peyote, to the wines like ayahuasca, to toad toxins, and to synthetic substances that bind to 5-HT receptors. And in addition to all of this, there are atypical psychedelic molecules like ketamine or ibogaine, which affect NMDA or opioid receptors. For the sake of simplicity, we will take exemplars of these substances and explain. Once you know what they do, you can build on that knowledge to understand what some other specific substance does. Make sense? Should we dive straight in? With that understanding, it's time to dig a bit deeper into how the brain cells communicate as a network. The best way to approach the brain is like a weighing scale. No, not the digital one that you use in your bathroom in the morning to check on yourself and feel bad, but the ones that were used before things became digital. Remember those? You had two pans, one where you would place an object whose weight was unknown, and in the other you would place the weights? You had a needle mounted on a lever that supported the two pans, and when the weight was optimal and balanced, the needle stayed in the middle. If it swung one way or the other, it meant that the pan on that side was heavier. You got it? You got a picture of it? Now apply that same thinking to the brain. You have two states, an excitatory state and an inhibitory state. To explain this further, here's Dr. Joanna Neal. Dr. Neal is a pharmacologist by training and was trained by some of the most amazing scientists. She split her time between academia and the pharmaceutical industry in the early days of her training, and is now a professor at the University of Manchester. She was also the past president of the British Association of Psychopharmacology and currently serves as the chair of Psychedelics Working Group for Drug Science UK, a charity organization set up to advocate for evidence-based drug policy reform. We consulted Joe because she has a strong pedigree that is not tainted by any agenda apart from using scientific evidence to inform the public awareness and policymaking. Here is Joe Neal describing how she started studying neuropharmacology. So I think the best example probably is the animal model that I set up then. So worked at Bradford and set up a company to, to work on drug discovery um, in psychiatry. So I've spent my career working with, with the pharmaceutical um, colleagues, scientists in pharma, and testing their drugs and the main unmet need at that time was cognition and schizophrenia and in other disorders, but mainly the cognitive disturbances that arise through that chronic illness. And there was a lot of interest from pharma to develop 
molecules that would restore cognitive. You're, you're talking about the, the balance in a brain. So the model I set up is an agglutinate antagonist given to rats for a week, adult rats, and then they never get it again. Um, so it's, it's fencyclidine, which is a close relative of ketamine and an NMDA antagonist. Now, talking about the brain being balanced, that causes imbalance in the brain because glutamate is all over the cortex. It's the main neurotransmitter and it, there's loads more of that than the other neurotransmitters. And it is in a balance with GABA. So GABA is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. And if you think, what happens if you go out drinking? Alcohol is a GABA agonist. And in fact, alcohol uh, substitutes are GABA-A, GABA-A receptor selective agonists. Very clever idea. Harmless alcohol substitutes. So that, and that's what causes a lot of the, the relaxation effects. And, you know, for social anxiety or social situations, very helpful. But that actually, because you get this increase in GABA over the period of the evening, when you get the hangover then, you have, well, what you've done is you've put your brain into an imbalance, really. So you you have upped the GABA and reduced and inhibited the glutamate. And what you get in the hangover is the opposite of that. And you get this increase in glutamate, and that can be one of the aspects, reasons why you feel so bad. And, you know, you get the sort of disorientation and so on. We think about the brain as being balanced, GABA and glutamate. And if you give an NMDA antagonist, you you upset that balance. And so glutamate is excitatory and you need glutamate to help you think and concentrate and learn new tasks. We can see glutamate release. But you have to have a balance. So you, you can activate it when you need it, but you don't want it to be increased all the time. And if it's too much, you can get... Um, you know, epilepsy um, and brain damage. So too much glutamate, definitely a bad thing for you. And what we get is this disinhibited brain in where, where you have these severe cognitive disturbances. And that means that the brain cannot function properly. The, the brain, yeah, so the brain has basically lost its balance. And for many disorders, it, it's most likely that the brain has lost balance. You know, in, if you think of depression, and an SSRI work, you need to restore that balance if you've, you've um, got a dysfunction in the serotonin system. I mean, it, it's a fairly straightforward um, idea, I think, that that is, in fact, what happens to people. So the brain operates like a balance. Excitation is needed for critical activities and too much excitation is not good either. And one condition where too much excitation happens is an epilepsy, where groups of cells, much like what happens in the case of heart palpitations, can start firing due to abnormal excitation, and this leads to seizures. And if there is too much of the inhibitory neurotransmitters, it numbs you as alcohol does at high levels of intoxication. And there are two chemicals released that control these excitatory and inhibitory functions, glutamate and GABA. GABA is an acronym which stands for Gamma Aminobutric Acid. And if you're an Australian or an aficionado of the wonderful sport of cricket, GABA with two Bs is a cricket ground in Brisbane, Australia. So jokes apart, if you had some basic chemistry or biochemistry in your school curriculum, 
you will probably would have figured out that these neurotransmitters, much like every protein made in our body, are derived from the food that we eat. Some of them are innately synthesized by cells in the body and move to various organs via the blood and therefore called non-essential amino acids and others that cannot be made by the body are called as essential amino acids to signify that one needs to obtain them from the outside via the food intake. So, what does any of this have to do with psychedelics? Well, there is a reason why we bring all of this in. So stick with us here. The elegant experiments of Arthur Hefter back in the 1890s were done without any understanding of the chemicals in the brain that mediated communication between regions of the brain. Don't you find that fascinating? Much like philosophy, science is based on philosophizing what the conclusion might be based on the results obtained via observation. And Hefter was the granddaddy of pharmacologists who unpicked the effects of the alkaloids present in the peyote cactus. In those days, pharmacologists were also trained in chemistry, so Hefter used chemical techniques to isolate the alkaloids and then study them and reported their effects. But we do know that the reports of the effects varied greatly between individuals, and that was a source of confusion. So time has moved on, and now let's look at these mind-altering effects through the prism of objectivity and with the benefit of hindsight. In fact, if you are listening out of curiosity and have not ingested a psychedelic substance, or even if you have ingested a psychedelic substance, you still need to understand how these drugs work. The stories are really fascinating. Recall that the disagreements between Kirk Berenger and Heinrich Kluwer ran deep. They had opposite opinions of what these substances did. The field of neuroscience, in this case, evolved from very humble beginnings. Just like what Joe Neal described with glutamate and GABA in the brain, the field of neuroscience was changing very rapidly around the time of the First World War. The credit to helping us understand what the chemical substances that control some of the nerve communication has a very interesting history. Around the time that chemistry was a fascination for Humphrey Davy, an Italian scientist by the name of Luigi Galvani stimulated the legs of a dead frog with an electrical current. And Galvani did not have a stimulator. In fact, the field of electricity itself had just begun. So Galvani was generating static electricity by rubbing the surgical instruments vigorously over the skin of the animals that he was dissecting. So while dissecting a frog leg, he happened to touch the sciatic nerve, which we all know is the nerve involved in the painful condition called sciatica. He inadvertently touched the nerve with forceps after rubbing the skin of the frog and observed that dead frog's legs twitched. And that was the beginning of the revelation that animals use electricity to communicate and nerves were the cables that carried this electricity. Kelvani's experiments were the first to substantiate this theory. And all of this was happening in the late 1700s, the same time that Humphrey Davy was running his laughing gas parties. So, for a long time, there was a massive controversy over whether nerve communication occurred via electrical or biochemical means. The reason for this was because people perceived nerve as the cable. But what they did not understand was how the muscle at the end of the nerve contracted when the nerve was actually stimulated. So scientists began to think that electricity triggered release of a chemical 
at the junction between the nerve and the muscle that caused it to contract, but whose origins were not known at the time. Mind you, this in itself was controversial at the time as the very presence of a chemical neurotransmitter was not considered plausible. So how did we understand that the electrical impulses from the nerves lead to release of neurochemicals in the junctions between the muscle and the nerve? And how these cause muscle contraction, similar to how Gervani observed? This is where the next wave of discoveries in neuroscience started. And right in the thick of it were the British pharmacologist called Henry Dale and a German-Austrian physician called Otto Lowy. The two scientists were close friends, and they were the first to isolate the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. Acetylcholine regulates multiple functions in the body, from size of the pupils, to salivary secretions, to slowing of the heart, to movement of the gut muscle, and even blood vessel size. For this, they were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine two decades later in 1936. And for the world that thrives on genomics, these discoveries were made 40 years before the structure of the DNA. So this should tell you that chemical messengers in the body are critical. In fact, it was Henry Dale who identified the different nerve cells and the populations in the body's nervous system by the type of neurotransmitters they produced, and this is called Dale's Principle. With that understanding in its infancy in the 1930s, there was still an active debate if nerve communication, especially where one nerve meets another nerve or a muscle, referred to as the synapse, was electrical or purely chemical. Another neurotransmitter that is always described both scientifically and in common parlance is adrenaline, which was starting to be described as early as the 1860s. The key point to remember is that the area of pharmacology and the identification of these neurotransmitters came from testing plant-based substances and its isolated chemicals on various animal tissues and in animals. Okay, let's bring it back to the psychedelic pharmacology. There are multiple neurotransmitters in the brain, and one primary neurotransmitter that was only discovered in the 1950s was serotonin. And would it surprise you if I said serotonin was not discovered first in the brain? Here is Joe Neal. So when Hefter started in the night, nobody knew serotonin existed. I mean, nobody knew about any neurotransmitters, did they? Um, so, and the, the main, as I said, most serotonin sits in the gut. There's loads of serotonin platelets as well. But it wasn't discovered until the 1930s. Um, and it was called enteramine because it caused smooth muscle contractions in the gut. And Aaron, you know, I, I see you smiling. You know all about this. Um, and the, the chat was Vittorio Eris Palmer. And then Morris Rapport um, worked on serotonin uh, and he synthesized it in 1951. And actually, there were a couple of women who were instrumental, of course, always the women, instrumental in developing our understanding of the serotonin system, um, Betty Twarog and Arda Green. And it's important to understand that these neurotransmitters come from the diet. 5-HT is a precursor of 5-HT or something that, that makes it, um, is an essential amino acid. So tryptophan, L-tryptophan. And it helps the body make proteins and cell signaling mo molecules. So in your body, it will convert tryptophan into serotonin. 
And that's that's the neurotransmitter then that we have in the brain. So, that, of course, there's a lot of interest in people trying to manipulate their ser- serotonin through through dietary manipulations. But, of course, it's, that's not, not quite so straight, straightforward. But finding dairy and protein-containing foods then, um, tryptophan, and it has to be taken in in the diet. So some things are synthesized, um, you know, in the body um, without the precursor, but you, or the precursor sits in the body, but this, you have to take this in, in your diet. And then the site, we've talked about receptors, the site to which serotonin binds is called a receptor. And the, we, now we know there are 17 receptors. And you know, I remember very clearly the, the, the discovery of new serotonin receptors. So I talked about the discovery of ondansetron, and that was a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, which had not been identified until that time. And that was about the mid-80s. That was when I was doing my PhD, I remember. There was a lot of excitement. Glaxo working on this molecule and, and the discovery of the 5-HT3 receptor, which is an ion channel. Let's take it all in. Imagine a blank canvas, perfectly clean. Then a drop of colour falls on the canvas and an artist starts painting. Similarly, the best way to understand nerve transmission and how it modulates function is understanding how the artist's creativity cascades from one colour and one brush stroke to another. Neurotransmitters are made in the body, either within nerves or elsewhere, transported via the bloodstream and then taken up by nerve cells, released upon an electrical stimulus that a certain nerve cell receives, and this electrical stimulus causes the release of chemicals stored in the nerve terminals. This, in turn, binds to the proteins on the cell membrane that the nerve cells communicate with. This leads to the decoding of the chemical message, conveyed by the neurochemicals or the neurotransmitters, into a cascade of events that leads to a function. And Dr. Joe Neal described a growing understanding of a number of serotonin receptors in the body. And she mentioned Ondansetron, which was a drug made by a fantastic British pharmacologist called Sir David Jack, and his professional rivalry with another Nobel laureate, Sir James Black. The two gentlemen's scientific rigor and rivalry is what contribute to some seminal treatments from the very first acid reflux medication to migraine treatments to inhale medications for asthma. All of these medications follow a very similar molecular process to what I just described. Now let's come back to serotonin. Joe Neal also mentioned two women who were pivotal to the discovery of serotonin, and it might also surprise many that serotonin, a neurotransmitter, was not discovered by neuropharmacologists, but by cardiovascular scientists. Can we go on a little detour to find out how the work of a few cardiovascular scientists changed the course of our understanding of mental health disorders? To do this, we need to rewind our clocks back to the 1930s, around the same time as when Heinrich Kluwer was trying to understand the reason why visual hallucinations were happening with mescaline, and Kirk Berenger coined the term Dermescaline Roche to signify mescaline intoxication. An Italian physiologist, Vittorio Erspammer, who actually wanted to be a lawyer, but due to his family's insistence, took up science, was very interested in understanding the field of pharmacognosy, which is a fancy way of saying study of drugs from natural sources. Airspammer was interested in the smooth muscle constricting or contracting properties of various substances found in the skin 
and intestinal tracts. To study this, he examined many different species like rabbits, mollusks, frogs. But Erspimmer was interested in specific cells of the gut, which were called enterochromaffin cells, meaning they looked a bit like the cells of the gut lining, but seemed to have nerve endings. These cells, he postulated, secreted a substance that was fundamentally different to the adrenaline or noradrenaline that was discovered a few years ago. He figured out that these secretory cells released a neurotransmitter that caused the gut to contract. Remember we told you that chemistry and pharmacology ran hand in hand? And now let's add microbiology to the mix. Paul Ehrlich, a noted scientist in the 1910s, had described a great way to identify bacteria and to classify them. Since it was not known that the gut lining housed many bacteria and microbes that caused flatulence and also stain positive with stains used in microbiology, he ground the gut, extracted the mixture, and ran an indole test with Ehrlich's reagent to find that the substance that caused the gut muscle to contract was an indole, meaning it must be different compound than adrenaline. To differentiate from adrenaline, he coined the term enteramine to denote an amine derived from the gut. Here is another interesting tidbit. This is how LSD drug testing is carried out today, by using an Ehrlich reagent. Enteramine held a very important place and prominence and was shown to play an important role in the mollusk heart, as well as in the releasing of ink from the salivary glands of the octopus. Vittorio Erspimmer was a prominent researcher and played a key role in the discovery of several other neuropeptide compounds. The scene now shifts to 1945 and to the shores of Lake Erie in Cleveland, Ohio. A young scientist was working for a pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, in Indianapolis and decided to make the move to Cleveland to take up the role as the head of the laboratory Cleveland Clinic at the time was setting up a cardiovascular research unit and was investing $160,000 per year towards research on understanding high blood pressure and arteriosclerosis. Arteriosclerosis is a process by which the crazy plaque that forms inside the arteries that feed the heart, legs, the head, etc. So Irvine Page the scientist, became the director of research at the Cleveland Clinic and set out to work to identify substances that cause constriction of blood vessels, which we will refer to as vasoconstriction. Irvine Page postulated that in certain people, hypertension or high blood pressure could be explained by the presence of such vasoconstrictive substances in the blood. Since Page was from the pharmaceutical industry, he brought with him a very industrious organic chemist, Maurice Rappeau, to complement another biochemist who understood chemicals in the body, whose name was Arda Green. This is where if you're a non-scientist, you have to stop and marvel at the tools that scientists, especially pharmacologists, used at the time to understand body functions and develop drugs. Are you ready? Irvine Page had a preparation that he had developed, a rabbit ear artery preparation and this had its own issues. And if some of you know rabbits, and more importantly, if you know laboratory animals, some of these effects are seasonal and working with rabbits can be a bit of a nightmare. After months of perfecting, they assembled a fantastic testing preparation. Maurice Rappeau would synthesize the substances derived from indole derivatives. 
If you remember, indole derivatives were hot for a while. This was also the same time that Hoffman was working on his indole derivative and discovered LSD-25. Arda Green had another animal preparation where she was studying the role of blood flow to the kidneys and how these indole derivatives constricted the blood vessels to the kidneys as clinicians around this time observed that urine output was low in patients with hypertension. So Arda's hypothesis was that a decreased urine output was possibly coming from reduced blood flow into the kidneys. She also combined the ear artery preparation into the same animal and Maurice's compounds would be tested on both kidneys and the ear artery. The work on the kidneys by Arda Green led to a very important discovery of a substance called as angiotensin and the work on the ear artery led to a completely different route. And if you're wondering why am I talking about high blood pressure on a podcast about psychedelics, please hold on. It is all with an idea to tell you how scientific discovery works. Because remember, clinicians Humphrey Osman, Smithies, had always thought until the late 1960s that the substances that caused schizophrenia was a modified version of adrenaline and called it adrenochrome and used mescaline as a surrogate and called it as the M substance that was indigenously produced within the body to signify its close association to the effects of mescaline. Similarly, Maurice Rapport, the organic chemist, needed lots of blood to isolate the chemical substance that he would ultimately test. In fact, it's very probable that Irvine Page was a great scientist, but a pretty sucky boss. Maurice was not clear of what he needed to do. All he was told was, we are working on substances that constrict blood vessels that are present in blood. So Maurice decided he needed to go to the blood to understand what he needed to do. So what did he do? He did what any resourceful scientist would do. Early in the morning, he would go to the Cleveland slaughterhouse and collect eight 15-liter buckets of blood. Back at the lab, the blood was poured into a garbage can lined with cheesecloth and a small hole at the bottom. As the blood coagulated, the resultant serum dripped through the cheesecloth and out the hole. After two days in the cold room, 15 liters of serum were collected. More than 60 runs to the slaughterhouse were necessary to generate enough starting material. Through a five-step procedure which required ethanol precipitation of proteins, acetone precipitation of salts, chloroform extraction of inactive substances, butanol extraction of the active substance, and finally diluteric acid precipitation very small amount of vasoconstrictor substance was isolated. The original sample was then crystallized and the original vial is still on display at the Cleveland Clinic. And guess what was the appreciation for Maurice when he reported the finding to the research committee? The committee voted on March 9, 1948 to give Maurice a nice dinner party and decided that the substance was to be called serotonin to indicate that it was isolated from the serum one that controlled the blood vessel tone. A year later, Maurice had moved to Columbia and described the chemical structure of serotonin as 5-hydroxytryptamine. So Maurice, the chemist, and the female biochemist scientist, Arda Green, went on to describe the role of serotonin in animal preparations 
and for all the genomic profiling experts. She went on to isolate the luciferase enzyme from fireflies that is used in a myriad genomic assays as reporters. She died six years later in 1954 due to cancer, but not before she described two additional molecules, angiotensin and an enzyme called phosphorylase A, which plays a role in breaking down glycogen stores in the liver. Are we ready for the role of another fantastic woman scientist? Her name was Betty Twarog, and she was a graduate student at Tufts College in Philadelphia, who was fascinated by a lecture she heard about mollusk muscle preparation and a phenomenon that was observed in mollusks called as catch. It is this very catch state that enables the muscles to resist detachment by the crashing waves. So in the catch state, muscles remain contracted and resist stretch long after the period of excitation has passed, enabling both attachment and to collect food from the incoming tide. It is almost the equivalent of being in a state of sustained muscle contraction called as tetanus. Fascinated by this phenomenon, she decided to do her PhD on muscle, muscle contraction in Harvard and came upon a paper by Maurice Rapo, Arda Green and Irvine Page. Through her work, she discovered that the neurotransmitter that caused the muscle contraction was acetylcholine, but the one that caused the reversal of contraction was still an enigma. She saw two different descriptions. Papers from Vittorio Erspammer that described enteramine in the salivary glands of mollusks and octopus, which caused the muscles of the salivary gland to contract, and another from the Cleveland Clinic group that showed the vasoconstrictive properties. Twarok's PhD supervisor was able to procure the synthesized serotonin extracts from Abbott Laboratories. Twarok, using these extracts, discovered that the unknown neurotransmitter that caused muscle relaxation was serotonin. She wrote up the paper, but the Journal of Cellular and Comparative Physiology sat on the manuscript for close to two years, as it was not considered time-sensitive to review a paper, and I quote, on an unknown neurotransmitter by an unknown scientist. But in these two years, something very interesting happened. After her PhD, Twarog decided to move to Akron Canton area in Ohio and decided that she would take up a position at Kent State University. And knowing that it was only a 50-mile car ride to Cleveland Clinic, she wrote to Irvine Page and asked if she could work with him. She was convinced that the invertebrate neurotransmitters might have a role in the mammalian vertebrate systems. Irvine Page was thought to have been very skeptical about the presence of such a substance in the brain but agreed as Betty Twarog was very driven, so Irvine Page decided to give her a lab and a technician. To demonstrate the presence of indole substances, she replicated Urs Palmer's Ehrlich tests on brain tissue of clams. She again wrote up her findings, and this time it was accepted in Journal of Biological Chemistry in 1953, way before her original PhD thesis research was actually published. Irvine Page's 1968 book, Serotonin, has an interesting recollection. When cerebral metabolism, or brain chemistry, was being established as a field worthy of study, serotonin played an extraordinary role. 
It will come as a surprise to younger readers that even as late as 1937, many scientists were dubious as to whether neurochemistry was indeed a discipline. If I had to select a single effect resulting from the discovery of serotonin, I would unhesitatingly suggest its influence in shaping investigators' ideas on cerebral activity. So this is how serotonin, a molecule that has so much impact on mental health, was discovered. But the role in describing serotonin's role in brain function fell to another scientist, Dilworth Wayne Woolley. By combining the work of Betty Twarog, showing serotonin existed in the brain, with Albert Hoffman's discovery of LSD, and his own work on LSD as an anti-metabolite of serotonin, Dr. Woolley proposed a role for serotonin in mental illness. If you're wondering what an anti-metabolite is, we will help you. Substances which are structural analogs of naturally occurring metabolites and which interfere with the functioning of those metabolites as a tool to investigate those diseases. So LSD was interfering in D.W. Woolley's thinking to place on the cells that serotonin would normally be present. D.W. Woolley developed a fascination for anti-metabolites when he realized from reports from British colonies and poorer countries where diet low in niacin or meals high in corn prevented the conversion of tryptophan to nicotinamide and thus was causing a condition called pellagra. He developed the anti-metabolite idea further by isolating and characterizing nicotinamide, a substance involved in pellagra. While working on the isolation of nicotinamide, he noticed the work of Albert Hoffman's LSD in the papers from Cleveland Clinic on serotonin and was the first to notice that the structure of Hoffman's LSD was similar to serotonin described by Maurice Rapport, Arta Green, and Irvine Page. Interestingly, D.W. Woolley was severely diabetic and is said to have been half-blind at a young age due to a diabetic retinopathy. So it's truly amazing that he was accomplished despite this limitation. D.W. Woolley did what most scientists do. He wrote up his findings and sent it out to Lancet for review. He reported that serotonin was important for brain development and could play a role in mental health disorders. Guess what the reviewers said? If you're holding a cup of hot coffee or about to take a sip of anything, either finish it or stop. The journal reviewers said, and I quote, It was not enough to make a suggestion, but the author has to prove his point by curing mental health disorders, end quote. While Lancet reviewers were a bit snotty, Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences did see merit and accepted Woolley's paper in 1954. Yes, scientists, despite being perceived as rational and analytical, can also be pinheads sometimes. Dr. Woolley's work and hypothesis were summarized in his 1963 book, The Biochemical Basis of Psychosis, or The Serotonin Hypothesis About Mental Illness. D.W. Woolley wasn't too faced by this. Irvine Page called him the most vocal proponent of serotonin's role in brain, who made the best case for the participation of serotonin in mental illness. He continued his research and also took holidays. It was during one such holiday on a trek in the Peruvian Andes that D.W. Woolley died. It is very interesting that the earliest documented evidence of psychedelic substances 
was from the Andean region by the tribes of Chawin civilization, as Mike J. documented in his book. But it was also the same region that accounted for the scientist who proposed the role of serotonin in mental health disorders. Interesting, isn't it? As we keep saying, life, like history, has a habit of going round in circles. Can I also say that the anti-metabolite theory, originally postulated by D.W. Woolley, has now found new life in anti-cancer agents? So once again, while the world was singing praises of the drugs of the elite and getting lost in the doors of perception, introducing LSD to the counterculture and dosing the expendables with LSD, there were a group of few good, industrious scientists who were working on understanding the way the brain worked. Interestingly, the key steps did not come from a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a writer, but from an orthogonal speciality of chemistry and cardiovascular science. While the world still celebrates the psychedelics, these individuals who played such a pivotal role in understanding what serotonin does are long forgotten from public description. So now let us focus on the role that serotonin has. We heard in the midst of all the stories that serotonin or enteramine, both signifying one and the same molecule, is a 5-hydroxytryptamine. It is produced via a series of chemical reactions from the amino acid tryptophan, which needs to be provided via the diet. This serotonin molecule has various functions. It causes smooth muscle contractions like what Vittorio Erspalmer described. It also causes the blood to clot as Maurice Rapport discovered and is now known to be present in high quantities inside blood platelets. We also learned that serotonin causes the blood vessels to contract as shown by Arda Green. Then Betty Twarok demonstrated that serotonin was present in the salivary glands and was important for muscle relaxation in mollusks. But the difference was Betty Twarok's description was not in the smooth muscle of the salivary glands but of the skeletal muscle of the mollusks. Then D.W. Woolley showed that serotonin has a role in brain development and that drugs like LSD was an anti-metabolite. So this, in a nutshell, is what pharmacology of serotonin looks like. Depending on the organ, serotonin has different effects. So now, there's all the variety of physical effects that people felt with peyote and LSD. Make sense? So serotonin and LSD are alike. It is fair to say that most psychedelic molecules either compete or resemble serotonin in eliciting the effects seen with psychedelic molecules. But is it really that simple? Well, the answer is yes and no. Back then we said the following. Psychedelics refer to a group of natural, plant-based or synthesized substances that, in any given dose, as known for other medicinal products, modify basic neurological functions to enhance the user's sense of perception. Okay, so we've given you ample evidence that these psychedelics are plant-based substances. They are derived from plants, be it mescaline from peyote and San Pedro, or LSD from ergot fungi that grow on wheat. We'll come to the others later on in the podcast series. Next, we brought in the concept of dose, by saying that in any given dose, as known for other medicinal products, modify basic neurological functions. 
Can we dig a bit deeper on this part? So let's recollect that we have discussed so far regarding dose. Remember Mescaline and Hefter's experiments? Hefter concluded via meticulous experiments that the alkaloid, mescaline, responsible for psychoactive effects of peyote cactus, was effective at 400 mg dose. By taking lower concentrations of the alkaloid, the effects and kaleidoscopic patterns were not vivid. Similarly, with LSD, Hoffman took a dose of 250 micrograms for his bicycle ride, only to titrate it further with lower doses of LSD, as low as 100 micrograms a few times. All of these experiments by Hefter and Hoffman were acute experiments, meaning they were ingested once and not tried the very next day. So we do know that a single dose of mescaline or LSD can trigger kaleidoscopic patterns and visual effects. Then we saw the impact of what happened with chronic LSD dosing with CIA experiments, where, despite it being gruesome, deserves some discussion. When Gottlieb got Dr. Pfeiffer to dose inmates continuously every day for 77 days, what was happening was a different phenomenon to what Hefter and Hoffman did. They dosed the prison inmates every day for 77 days, and as a result, the prison inmates became psychotic. One can argue what brought on this effect, whether it was a proper psychotherapy session or if it was just dosing and the prisoners left to their own devices after dosing. The latter is probably true, and this is important to understand from a scientific perspective. Can we dig deeper on the concept of dose? Okay, so every drug known to man has the following relationships. Most commonly, such relationships are devised for new products under development through a series of tests in cell cultures, animal studies prior to human clinical trials. Based on these tests, a profile of a potential drug is identified. Today, it is almost taken for granted that every molecule under development undergoes these tests and a profile is provided to regulators like the FDA for review prior to any human clinical trials are undertaken. In fact, this is what I specialized in doing as a safety pharmacologist in the early stages of my career. I think for most drugs, especially for psychedelics, people ought to understand. Simply because everybody seems to have an opinion based on use, misuse, self-experimentation and hearsay, it may or may not necessarily be right. It is time to educate yourselves whether you are a user or if you are a general public who will hear about the impact soon and will have a vote in your state or local elections. It is also because you, as an educated and a smart listener, needs to think through a drug and then vote on decriminalization of possession or understand the profile of a drug if you are in a situation of needing to seek help by undergoing psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So, Every drug can be understood in a very simple graphical plot. On the x-axis, you have the drug concentration increasing from 0 to a certain number. And on the y-axis, you have the drug effects. Irrespective of what test is performed to understand the drug effects, their response can actually be plotted on the y-axis. Every drug binds to a protein on the cell surface to elicit its effects. In the case of serotonin or psychedelic drugs like LSD, it binds to a certain class of 5-HT receptors 
called as type 2A receptors. Upon binding, think of it like a key fitting into a lock. Just like the key dislodges a number of interconnected cogwheels in a lock and enables the opening of the lock, serotonin or serotonin-like mimics unlocks a series of molecular processes. Scientists will have a number of names for these processes, but for the sake of simplicity, let us call it second messengers. The first was the drug that carried the information to open the lock. And the second messengers refer to the cogwheels that the key opens. These second messengers go through a series of molecular events like a cascade that determine the drug response in a single cell, which adds up in an organ like a brain, heart or the gut. One of the most published pharmacologists in the area is Dr. Brian Roth, Professor of Pharmacology at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Here is Brian recounting why he was interested in studying psychedelics. I basically got interested in in psychedelic drugs and what were then called psychotherapeutic drugs. We now call them uh, psychiatric medications. When I was a teenager, uh, early teen actually, it was sort of the tail end of the 60s and lots of people were taking drugs like LSD and uh you know, clearly being affected by them. I remember one one boyfriend of my uh, sister's, what, what I was told was a large dose of LSD. I don't know if that's true or not, but he ended up in a psychiatric hospital for a fairly long period of time. And when I was uh, very young, my mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. And um, so I, I sort of had this idea, which was not, not original with me, but it was something that I had read when I was um, sort of a young teenager, that uh, drugs, uh, psychedelic drugs, could induce sort of a model schizophrenia, give you insight into into that disease. And um, there were other drugs that uh, some of them blocked the effects of LSD that were very effective in treating schizophrenia. So um, I was just, you know, just fascinated about what the hell was going on there. I didn't know any chemistry. I didn't know anything about the brain, but, you know, basically read everything that was available in, in the library in my small town in Montana, which was not a lot, but I read it. And, uh, you know, then I went to college and I was a pre-med. Um, I, w- I would say, you know, from sort of the age of 14 or so, I had pretty much decided that, uh, you know, I wanted to be a psychiatrist and study how these drugs work. Brian decided that he wanted to do his PhD in psychopharmacology and his area of research was on opiate receptors. It was during his postdoctoral work at National Institute of Mental Health with Minio Costa that his mentor suggested that Brian study serotonin receptors. The field of molecular pharmacology, especially serotonin pharmacology, was just blooming and Brian had made some seminal contributions to how these receptors work. But remember, the tool that the pharmacologist has to study, the responses to a drug, was the drug itself. But LSD was banned. Here is Brian again. Well, LSD is sort of the prototypical psychedelic drug. And, you know, certainly is, you know, you would say the most famous or most notorious of all psychedelics. The other, the other thing is that it was the one that I listed on my DEA license. 
to work with these drugs, you have to have a special license from the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, what's called a Schedule One license, which are which are extreme, actually extremely difficult to to get. And when I was in Costa's lab, LSD was basically the drug they had that they had around. And uh, when I when I got my Schedule One license, at the time I didn't realize that every Schedule One compound you have to justify separately. So there's this huge amount of paperwork and bureaucracy you have to go through uh, to get one of these licenses. And so uh, we just put down LSD and then a couple of others. We didn't even put down psilocybin uh, because it never occurred to me. Okay, so now going back to serotonin and how we know even anything about what serotonin does molecularly comes from people like Brian Roth. Here's Brian again recounting how much this field has bloomed. There's, there's even evidence that, uh, you know, there's serotonin has effects on the liver, the pancreas, bones. Basically, every organ in the body is affected to some extent or another by serotonin. And to mediate uh, these effects, um, a huge number of receptors have, have evolved. And in humans, there are 15 different serotonin receptors. And a little historical note, um, one of the early serotonin uh, receptor conferences I went to, um, I think in the 80s, uh, they were basically serotonin receptors are being discovered by molecular cloning technology. And I remember I, I talked to one, uh, one person who was at a company uh, that was specializing basically in, in cloning receptors. And he said, don't worry, Brian, there's enough, there are so many serotonin receptors, everybody can have one to study. Uh, <laughs> so that was that was actually a nice thing about the field there were just so many receptors that you could focus on one and you know there probably are only two or three other groups in the world that were studying that particular receptor um so it was it was good for me there wasn't a huge amount of competition so how does a pharmacologist study these myriad receptors are you curious let's hear from brian again so let me, let me just talk about the diversity of receptors first. So because there are 15 different receptors, um, you know, one of the practical uh, aspects of this is that in theory, we can make drugs specific for every receptor. And because um, each receptor is found in a, you know, a different tissue or a different part of the brain and has a different effect on, say, brain functioning or or functioning outside the brain, you could you could basically make a drug that hits you know receptor A but not receptor B. It might have a beneficial effect for say migraine headaches, or may have a beneficial effect in depression, or a beneficial effect in schizophrenia, or you know a beneficial effect for people that have uh, Crohn's disease, etc. So it really opened up up the floodgates for basically pharmaceutical development, which is con- continuing today. But one of the things that we, we noticed early on was that it was, it was fairly difficult to make drugs that were absolutely selective for one receptor versus the other. That, that's the problem. And so that's the thing that my lab has, has basically been focused on the last, the last uh, 30 years, is to understand precisely how it is that serotonin and other drugs bind to these receptors ultimately at the atomic level, and then to use this information to design uh, what we hope are safer and more effective medications. 
Uh, and as a, you know, as a side advantage, we can understand how psychedelics uh, exert their actions. Um, since drugs like LSD have their actions by binding to receptors, if, uh, if we can understand how they bind to and, and stabilize the active state of the receptor, then that can give us basically the first insight into the uh, action of psychedelic drugs. So we can, our hope was we could capture this very first step of psychedelic drug action. Uh, since we don't know a lot about how psychedelic drugs act, my, the, the idea I had was if we, can, if we can ultimately capture this very first step of psychedelic drug action, then we can work out from that and ultimately understand everything there is to know about psychedelics. And it just took a long time to, to capture that first step. So I started uh, my very first grant, uh, which I submitted, I think, in 92, 1992 or so, was basically to solve the structure of this receptor in complex with uh, various drugs, including psychedelics. And uh, sadly, it just took a <laughs> it just took a long time to accomplish that. <laughs> Luckily, I was I was able to get funding uh, through the years to continue the work. <laughs> so, from what Brian was saying, we know that serotonin binds to the receptor, and more specifically, LSD binds to serotonin receptors, or what the scientifically inclined will refer to as 5-HT receptors. Okay, so now I have some bad news for all the psychedelic advocates, especially the ones who promote psychedelics for recreational use, and more importantly, for those who microdose based on anecdotal evidence. So is LSD the panacea for everything? Or in other words, is LSD the perfect drug, which just happens to be a psychedelic? So LSD actually has a really complex pharmacology. So... um and we've looked at this in great detail, and we're, uh, we, which we published, and we're, we're actually getting, putting together a, a big paper where we're looking at every, every known psychedelic. Um, but LSD is very unusual in that it you know, binds to and activates virtually every serotonin receptor. So maybe thir- 12 or, or so of the serotonin receptors LSD activates. It actually is an antagonist at one serotonin receptor, the 5-HT7, interestingly enough for reasons that are not entirely clear, but could have something to do with its antidepressant activity. And it also activates dopamine receptors fairly potently. So we have published this. I think it's it's something that uh, has been um, you know ignored or not not taken to, into account. But it's, you know, there are five dopamine receptors. LSD is pretty active at four of them, at least three or four of them. Um, it also activates uh, various adrenergic receptors. Um, this may uh, be responsible for some of the, you know, peripheral side effects of LSD, uh, dilated pupils. Uh, some people have flushing, you know, this sort of thing. Um, and then there are some, you know, miscellaneous receptors that it, that it interacts with. So, you know, it's, it has this extremely complex pharmacology. Psilocybin, uh, you know, by contrast, psilocybin itself is inactive. It has to be metabolized to psilocin. Psilocin actually has a fairly complicated pharmacology as well, we have found. So it activates many serotonin receptors, has, 
has some ability to activate uh, dopamine receptors as well, although nothing like LSD. Um, so slight, you know, slightly different uh, pharmacology. Um, in terms of the psychedelic actions, though, it's, it's pretty clear uh, based on human studies that the psychedelic effects are mediated through the 5-HT2A receptor. And this comes from studies in which uh, people have been given a 5-HT2A antagonist, Catanserin, uh, and then given LSD or psilocybin, and they report that the effects are are gone, basically. Um, so, you know, pretty clear that at least for the psychedelic actions, it's it's the 5-HT2A. So, you know, very, very complicated story, actually. So LSD binds to a myriad receptors in the body. So what, one might ask? What should anyone care about microdosing? Microdosing refers to the concept that the drug taken in really small quantities can provide the mild activation threshold, which in the case of psychedelics is so-called anecdotal mention of enhancement of cognitive function. Here's Brian again as to why microdosing for mental benefits doesn't make any sense. Now, one of the one of the serious potential side effects, particularly for LSD, uh, particularly for people that uh, are contemplating microdosing, is that LSD also activates uh, this related receptor, the 5-HT2B receptor, which is found in heart valves. And it's so this is something my lab discovered um, 20 years ago. And drugs that activate that receptor cause valvular heart disease. So it's 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 well known. And um, so it doesn't do it in everybody. So about, uh, you know, 30, 20 to 30 percent of people who take ergots, you know, LSD is an ergot. So ergotamine, uh, methysergide and so on. Dihydroergotamine, drugs used in treating migraine headaches or drugs used in treating Parkinson's disease that are related to uh, LSD cause valvular heart disease in around 20 to 30 percent of the, the people that take them. For extended periods of time, so this is this is a really con- really big concern actually for microdosing uh, LSD in particular. Um, it looks like in our in our in our preliminary data, it looks like uh, psilocybin probably doesn't have that problem. That's that's our our initial data because it doesn't, at least in our hands, doesn't activate the receptor. Yeah, so microdosing, you know, from what I understand. Uh, from reading about it is doses of like 10 to 20 micrograms every day or every other day, some every third day, something like that. So, you know, a tenth of the dose of a psychedelic dose. So here's the problem. So when, when LSD binds to the 5-HT2A and the 5-HT2B receptor, it binds very tightly and it doesn't get off the receptor, basically. It's very unusual in that, in that aspect. And we have, we found and we published, for instance, that once LSD is on the receptor, it's on the receptor for like six to eight hours. It doesn't, it doesn't fall off. And so you get this prolonged sort of stimulation of the receptor at, at, a, at quote unquote microdosing. You're not occupying a lot of the receptors in the brain, um, but those receptors that the drug is on are activated to some extent. And that's, that's the same for the brain or the receptors in the heart. So that's, that's my concern that, that um, it's, it's different from other drugs. So most other drugs, they get on the receptor, 
Um, they fall off the receptor. When the drug is out of the body, they're gone, basically. That's not the case with LSD. When it gets on the receptor, it's stuck there. Uh, you know, this, this could be important for the efficacy of microdosing because you can't explain it any other way. Um, but it could also be important for uh, side effects such as valvular heart disease. I'm concerned enough about it that whenever I'm interviewed about this, I, I mention it to people. Um, <laughs> Uh, at some at some point in time, probably some enterprising cardiologist at Stanford University will go to Silicon Valley and do echocardiograms on all the venture capitalists and and uh, and programmers that are microdosing LSD and answer the question. <laughs> so it is crucial to understand the difference here. A single dose and the quantity ingested determines the psychedelic experience and the physical symptoms. There is a big chronic dose, as was done by Sidney Gottlieb. Then there is the concept like microdosing, where small chronic doses are used to prime the receptors. But a drug like LSD can bind to the receptor long enough and still not produce enough response because the drug concentration is not high enough. But it might bind to the serotonin receptors in the other organ, predisposing the users to other adverse effects. Somehow this type of information is lost in the hype and hysteria. So you as a listener must approach psychedelics like any other drug with the concept of dose in mind. So let's go back to the graphical plot that we had. Increasing drug concentration on the x-axis and drug response on the y-axis. So pharmacologists have a great way to mark what the effects of the drug are at a given concentration. So in understanding what the drug does, one can plot how the serotonin binds to a 5-HT2A receptor itself or how much of it actually travels to the brain versus stays in the bloodstream to affect the processes in the brain or the gut or the heart. So based on this, a pharmacologist can define an efficacy dose, which is the effect that is desired, and the adverse effects defined as the non-intended effects like the changes in gut function or an increase in heart rate. Why am I saying this? Because you can define by this mechanism an efficacy dose, an adverse effect dose, and the margin or the space between the efficacious dose and the adverse dose is a concentration that you can test and use without impacting safety in patients. Let me explain even further with examples. Sidney Gottlieb dosed the highest dose of LSD every day for 77 days in a prison experiment. And this triggered psychosis. So this is an adverse event. But a psychologist used a single dose of LSD at 250 micrograms once to treat a patient. So this 250 micrograms was enough to engage the receptors and trigger a psychedelic response. But with microdosing on the other hand, there is no scientific evidence to suggest that a reliable response can be elicited to improve cognitive function without producing a psychedelic trip. Our suggestion is to look at microdosing in the context of science and not as a subjective effect of how one feels. Because the most recent survey study showed that microdosing was no different to a placebo. A randomized control trial is now underway, but at the level of the receptors, as Brian Roth said, it is hard to say that microdosing elicits any response. Okay, now we know that these are plant-based or plant-derived substances 
that at any given dose can enhance the user's sense of perception. Really? We haven't said anything with regard to why the user's sense of perception is better. Can we dig a bit deeper into that part, enhancing user's perception? First, before we go any further, we have already established through previous episodes and in the first part of this episode where Dr. Joe Neal mentions that alcohol, opioids are inhibitory agents. But psychedelics were said to be perception enhancers. So what evidence is there to suggest this effect? Here is Brian Roth again. Oh, so a psychedelic, um, I, def- I define uh, as a drug which has LSD-like actions. So any drug that has LSD-like actions. And that, that sort of distinguishes it from hallucinogens. You know, salvia is a hallucinogen, not like LSD. Talk to anybody who smokes salvia and has taken LSD, they'll say, this is not like LSD, right? Definitely a different thing. Um, Ibogaine, not like LSD, right? Uh, But it's a hallucinogen. So um, I guess if you talk to people who have taken mushrooms and and LSD, uh, they'll say sort of the same, I guess, or mescaline, something sort of similar, right? Um, so more like, so something that, something that's, so a drug that has LSD like actions. And I think that's, that's probably Merriam Webster's definition of psychedelic as well. So what psychedelics do, uh, drugs like LSD is they cause, uh, layer five pyramidal neurons to fire in a very asynchronous fashion. Okay. Layer five pyramidal neurons, uh, integrate, uh, sensory information and cognitive information from all cortical areas. In particular, an area of the neuron called the apical dendrite, and that's where the receptors are most highly enriched. So um, 5-HT2A receptors are localized to apical dendrites. This was, again, something my lab discovered, you know, decades ago. Um, And so basically what's happening, you know, you can think, one way to think about it is what psychedelics do is they induce noise in the system. They're inducing noise in the brain. Inducing noise in the system. How does inducing noise in the system enhance perception and produce visual hallucinations and deep reflective episodes under therapy? Well, let's go step by step then. If you ask a pharmacologist like Brian Roth, and we did, here is his answer. In a nutshell, he can predict what these drugs do at a molecular level based on how well the drug binds to the receptor, but what happens after that is not well understood. Are you ready to dig into the psychedelic experience with a scientific lens? Here is Brian Roth again. If we, if we distinguish the brain from the mind, okay, so they're inducing noise in the brain, the mind has a remarkable ability to make up a story about anything, okay? And it basically makes up stories about, you know, to come to grips with this noise. You know, this noise can be visual hallucinations, unusual feelings, uh, feelings of rapture, uh, feelings of union, etc. And it, it basically makes, you know, I hate to tell people this. It's just a story the mind has made up about the experience. It's a very memorable story. So one of the one of the remarkable things about psychedelics is 
the psychedelic experience has tremendous salience for people, so it's very memorable. Okay, um, why this is, we don't know. It's it's something I you know hopefully hopefully eventually we can we can address. We think there are long term changes that occur in the neurons physically, um, which are part of the substrate of this, but they they form this sort of memory, this 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 glow, this feeling. So if you look at the at the clinical trial data with psilocybin, uh, you know, people, they take psilocybin for the first time in their lives. You know, six months later, they say this is the most memorable experience they've ever had in their life, ever. Okay? So there's something about, about the drug. It's a drug action on the brain that, that induces this feeling of importance, more important than anything ever they've experienced. So this is, this is very, you know, this is interesting. Um, I don't think it's due to any, you know, it's a drug, basically. It's binding to a receptor. It's causing neurons to fire. I don't think it's, it's due to any supernatural power of the drug. It's just a drug, for God's sake. I can synthesize it in the lab. <laughs> so let me, tell you, let me tell you one other thing. So when I, when I treated people with schizophrenia uh, and I was explaining things to medical students, they would say, how can this person believe that, you know, aliens are planting beaming thoughts into his head, basically? How, do, how can he believe this? We tell him it's not. And, and what I would say to them is that their hallucinations are more real to them than reality is for you. It's more real, okay? And there's something about the psychedelic experience that taps into that, basically, that it becomes a very real experience. You know, people may have the experience of, you know, seeing Jesus or Buddha or uh, Ganesh or, um, you know, Allah or, or whatever, um, or aliens. You know, if they smoke DMT, they, they uh, see aliens, uh, uh, multidimensional aliens, right? And it's very, it's, it's like real. It's, it's real to them. What Brian is trying to say is, Unpicking what is real and what is not is not easy. This is probably why, in our opinion, the word hallucinogen must be avoided. But also there's something about psychedelics that make them different. It's the ability to remember what happened during a psychedelic drug experience. So now you probably understand why the Native Americans used peyote and told the white invaders that they speak with God directly, while the Christian missionaries only spoke about God. And much of this evidence comes from imaging studies that were done in the UK. Before we go into that, there are some crucial things to understand. The brain is an organ that takes the path of most efficient energy use. Some of you might know that while there are many other organs like the heart and the muscles on your body that rely on high energy producing mechanisms to produce energy, the brain primarily uses glucose and much of it through a process called as anaerobic glycolysis, meaning it does not use oxygen to burn through glucose to produce energy. So brain computes in a way that makes it energy efficient. And the best way to understand this concept is in understanding how the process of vision works. Imagine you're staring at a pond filled with trees dotted around the pond and there are birds flying in and out. The eyes get fixated on one frame and the optic nerve sends impulses that only updates the changes to the image 
say a bird flying in or out or a squirrel running onto a branch to make the birds fly away. The entire set or the background is ignored to enable more energy efficient focusing on the changes to the image but not to the image itself. So over time there is a streamlining effect be it in health to enable normal functions or disease. The brain gets locked into additive substitution rather than reprocessing. So evolutionarily it makes sense because the entire frame needs to be processed every time then either we need faster computation in the brain or the processing needs to be slower. What psychedelics do is break down this and induce noise. So now with this idea let us go to some of the brain imaging studies. Studies led by two scientists Robin Carhart Harris and David Nutt have shown that single dose LSD administration leads to two striking effects. One is an increase in cortical blood flow and another was marked quietening of some of the deeper brain regions like the parahippocampus and the retrosplenial cortex. These two centers provide a strong sense of self. So psychedelic substances like LSD and psilocybin break down this sense of self or what some call as ego dissolution centers. This forces the person to look inside themselves promoting self-reflection. We will come more to this topic very soon when we talk about the benefits of ego dissolution in psychotherapy. But in addition to the enhanced blood flow to the cortical regions, it also seems to promote more interconnectedness. And the best way to explain this is to imagine the earth and the world before internet, much like how the author Thomas Friedman describes the connectivity in a circular world pre-internet. The information flow is always linear and slower and comes through nodal points, much like how telegram or telephone used to work. But psychedelics make the cortex flatter, much like how internet has flattened the world and enabled a multitude of connections. But so instead of a linear information flow, a single point on the map of the brain can be connected to multiple points and vice versa this flattening of the brain structure and its connection and much like how internet evened out the inequalities and democratized information access psychedelics do the same to the brain's cortical regions as a result the enhanced connectivity in the absence of filtering from deeper ego centers make the subject more prone to see and perceive different signals be it visual auditory or kinesthetic this again is not exclusive to psychedelic substances for example tinnitus is an area where auditory centers in the brain are hyperactive and cause ringing in the ears it is interesting to note that both visual and taste perception areas are located adjacent to these so over the last few years an experimental treatment for tinnitus aims to synchronize sound waves through a headphone an electrical stimulation of the tongue to provide a network suppression of the entire region by creating noise. And guess what? In tinnitus, such bimodal stimulation of both auditory with sound via earphones and olfactory regions via the tongue stimulation leads to significant reduction in tinnitus symptoms, similar in magnitude to some of the psychedelic drug trials in depression and PTSD. In addition, psychedelic molecules enhance plasticity and also enhance neurogenesis. Here is Brian Roth. 
you know, what we know is that, uh, you know, psychedelics change uh, connections in the brain, right? So uh, there, there is, uh, you know, good data that they, you know, at, at least in mice, they cause uh, increased spines to, to proliferate on neurons. This is something, you know, my lab uh, discovered, you know, 11 or 12 years ago and is sort of has been rediscovered. So they cause, you know, plasticity and, and, and spinogenesis. And, um, you know, what we know about spines on neurons, those are important for information transfer in the brain. And, you know, so one can imagine that, uh, you know, increasing synaptic connectivity could make you more, you know, I can imagine it could make you more creative or allow you to focus better. I'm sure many of you will get more detailed information by reading various books or research articles, but the holistic pharmacology of psychedelics are dependent on dose, clear understanding of what those compounds do to how these effects are produced and can be titrated. But what we haven't told you is the amount of fight that the researchers had to put up to study these substances again. We will come to more of these stories soon. You've been listening to Psychedelics. Psychedelics is a Scraps original podcast produced and narrated by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Scraps is a volunteer-run organization created by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt to disseminate factful stories of science, scientists, and innovators as a service to the world. Select research for this podcast was performed by Sharina Rice. The producers thank Clara Burtonshaw for her invaluable input. Multimedia services was provided by Dr. Romeo Ratch. The scripts were written and edited by Arun Sridhar and Jojo Platt. Financial support to cover the production costs was from Cyber Inc. and a kind donor BB. Recordings were done at Caprino Studios in the UK and Slightly Red Studio in San Francisco. Swaminathan Tirunyana Samandam performed the mixing and mastering. All recordings including interviews are properties of the producers and should not be reproduced without permission. The show notes, transcripts, and useful links pertaining to the episode are located at the podcast website, psychedelics.com.